You're listening to The Dead Prussian, a podcast about war and warfare. I'm not sure if you know where Angola is. I hope you know where Angola is because I've already done a show on Angola. It's one of those wars that hasn't been studied enough in this honest, humble host's most humble opinion. And if you know me, that's not a very humble opinion at all. Now, how many Prussians do you imagine have travelled to Angola? Modern-day Prussians, probably a lot. One Prussian that probably didn't was Big Carl. But that doesn't necessarily mean Big Carl's not relevant to this South West African country. G'day listeners, it is Mick and I'm your host once again for another episode of the Dead Prussian Podcast. I'm your host because no one better wants the job. Now, today we're going to continue talking about a particular war that seemed to interest quite a few of you listeners. And for those listeners that aren't interested in this particular war, I don't really care. Please just download the show. My guest today is Jack McCain. He's an instructor at the United States Naval Academy and instructs naval leadership, a college course encompassing self-leadership and organisational dynamics. Preparing future leaders for the Navy and the Marine Corps. I always forget to tell a Marine and ask him what it's like being in the Navy whenever I see them, so I'm going to remember to do that next time I see one. Now, he also instructs Naval Leadership Traditions Retrospective, which is a self-developed experimental elective combining the study of leadership science as viewed through US Navy history from 1776 to 2016, which actually sounds like a really awesome way to study leadership. But more importantly, Jack has written a book about Big Carl and the Angolan War. Now, I know you remember Angola because I just mentioned it before, but if you need more of a cue, remember when I interviewed Major General Roland de Vries? Remember? If you don't remember, go back to around December in your playlist and download and listen to the show. Or at least just download it so I get the stats. Anyway, Jack, thanks for coming on the show. Nick, thank you. I'm uh, incredibly happy to be here. Uh, it's indeed an honor and a pleasure, especially the fact that we get to talk about uh, Big Carl. Um, and um, you usually have somebody significantly more esteemed than myself on, so <laughs> I'm uh, just happy to be here. Well, I, uh, I I might be scraping the, the bottom of the barrel, but uh, the good news for you is that I've bought your book, so um, there's been a bit of treasure invested in you, so we're going to do this. Um, now, Jack, you currently instruct at the US Naval Academy, uh, and that's usually when you're not flying choppers. How did a pilot end up teaching organizational dynamics? Well, um, my last tour was three and a half years in Guam, which uh, that is a very long time. Um, so I really needed a little bit of time in the United States uh, yeah. after spending that long in the Far East. Yeah. Um, but uh, really what I wanted to do was to get back to the Naval Academy um, and get a little bit more of an academic experience. Uh, and I really wanted to teach because um, there's little more tangible impact that you can have um, on the career of a, a future military officer than being with them as they're developed. Um, so it, it's been one of the great pleasures of my life to be able to spend a couple of years teaching 
um, at the Naval Academy. Um, I also was, thankfully, I don't know how, accepted to uh, the Georgetown School of Foreign Service um, where I finished my graduate degree. So it was kind of a, a double bang for the buck tour in which I was able to both uh, instruct and instruct some of my own courses, courses of my own design, and uh, to have the added benefit of getting a grad degree and publishing a book. It's a, it sounds like you packed quite a lot into that short amount of time. Um, so for those listeners that are sitting at home uh, on the couch, eating a packet of Doritos, listening to this, wondering what movie marathon they're going to do for the weekend, uh, maybe just do something a little bit better with your time. Now, you mentioned your book. You've written a book called Angola, Clausewitz and the American Way of War, which I, I think is the most disparate title uh, a book has ever had. Can, can you provide our listeners with a quick overview of the book? Absolutely. Um, and I've had to make the joke several times recently since I published the book. Uh, I think I might have been a little overambitious with the title. <laughs> it's, um, it's pretty expensive. Um, but really, I set out to, to write this project. I've been trying to write about the Angolan border wars since I was in South Africa about 10 years ago. Um, because I was literally sitting in a bar and uh, got in a conversation with a former South African military officer, and um, he told me he was in the war. And I looked at him almost cross-eyed and said, what war? Uh, and I got a, a pretty stark education for about the next four hours. Um, and <laughs> what was so compelling about this conflict is just the range of military operations it covered. And so I knew that there was something here to write about. Um, the book itself is a comparative military strategy piece where I use the Angolan border war as a case study to examine the U.S., how we make strategy, um, and what our civil-military relationship looks like, um, and how we view war in the U.S. military. So it's like I said, it's not the longest book in the world. It would probably only take you a couple hours to get through. Um, but in essence, I, I wanted to draw some meaning out of the Angolan border war because really it is completely unstudied in the United States military. Um, I have not yet met a single individual that knows anything about it, um, which is also a good place to be academically because nobody knows anything about it. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> I... I... I think that's a that's a that's a good nice safe ground to to be in is uh, hold the territory no one knows about, and uh, I did I did uh, try and get through the whole book whilst uh, in one sitting, whilst looking after both a, an infant and a uh, and a preschooler, and uh, and they defeated me naturally. Um, but then I noticed one of our listeners, Stu, had actually give, had a photo of his book uh, being read by his daughter. So you know it's a wide and varied audience. Uh, the people interested in, in Prussian military theory in, in relation to uh, Southern Africa. Now, in the book... I'm really, really happy to have that... Uh, I, I apologize, sorry for interrupting. I'm just very happy to have that seven-year-old uh, readership. <laughs> yeah, that's, as long as you've got, you got an audience somewhere, then it's worth doing, um, which, is, which is something that took me a while to learn on this show. Um, now, in the book, you discuss a general theory about the American Way of War. Can you run our listeners through the, this theory? Yeah. So um, I don't come up with a uniquely American 
general theory. In fact, I don't come up with a, a general theory at all. Um, I really just take Clausewitz and apply it to the dearth of strategy, strategy that we have in the United States. Um, so to give you a little bit of context, I'll tell you how the, the project actually came about because um, I wanted to write about the border war. And if you remember a couple of years ago, hybrid war was on the tip of everybody's tongue. It was the new all-encompassing boogeyman that was going to dominate uh, contemporary military operations for the foreseeable future. Um, so I decided to jump on that gravy train and hold on with both hands and hopefully make something useful. But as I started to write, I realized there's, there's not actually a good definition for hybrid warfare. Everybody has a different take. Um, and so I, I had very little that I could actually sink my teeth into to bring some relevance to the topic. So what I did was took a step back and started to try to examine how we in the American military view warfare. Um, because it is not Clausewitzian um, as it should be. In fact, uh, I talk a little bit about it in the book. We have a tendency to view warfare through tactics and type, which is kind of a moniker um, I've attached to it. We are worried about what type of warfare it is so that we can identify it, whether it's air war, ground war, uh, conventional war, unconventional war, counterinsurgency war, wh whatever, you know, pick a pick. In fact, um, when I started the project and the thing that really pushed me uh, to Clausewitz was I found about 33 different types of war before I just gave up and, and stopped trying to count. Um, so here I am in the forest of my despair, trying to make some sense of hybrid war, making absolutely no sense of it. Uh, so I returned to the godfather of strategy, Clashwitz, yeah. and um, tried to figure out if I could apply it to the way the, the U.S. military views war. Um, so I, I do use his general theory that war um, is a continuation of political intercourse carried on with other means, uh, or by other means. I know there's a debate <laughs> as to the yeah. translation. Um, but that was where I wanted to start, was that um, war is a continuation of politics by other means, and that was where I went back to. Now, as I continued to, to read through Clashwitz to try to make some sense of this and to try to attach some meaning, um, there was one section that really, really stood out to me, and this kind of pushed the way that I viewed um, the entire rest of the writing process, which was his quote, that is, the first supreme, the most far-reaching act of judgment that the statesman and commander has to make is to establish the kind of war on which they are embarking neither mistaking it for, nor trying to turn it into something alien to its nature. This is the first of all strategic questions and the most comprehensive." Um, end quote. That was what drove me to re-examine everything that I knew about the way the U.S. viewed strategy and making war. Um, so I, I didn't make up my own general theory. I basically just stole one from Koshwitz. Hey, but if you if you're not stealing, then you're trying too hard. That's right. <laughs> no, so the um, it's an excellent quote. Um, you offered it's been offered in uh, in the same vein 
by one of our recent guests who was discussing ethics, and he used the exact same quote uh, to articulate his point, and I think uh, it's a very good quote that quite often goes uh, missed. Um, and listeners, you can probably get through book one and you can find that quote. So if you're not up for reading all of Big Carl, if you don't want to go to the logistics chapter, which trust me, it, it's tough, um, make sure make sure you go through at least book one and you, you'll find that um, in there and you can get some great context from that. Now, Jack, you focus on 32 Battalion a bit in the book and you, you highlight their unique uh, way of war. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about the tactics they employed and how this relates to the point you're making? Okay. Um, so 3-2 Battalion, uh, for the, the listeners that don't know, was um, the way that I viewed it was as a response to a strategic problem that the South Africans faced during the border war. They had very limited political support for the war at home, and therefore they had to both maintain political legitimacy for the, for the um, small efforts of the war and to limit casualties uh, on the part of South African soldiers. They had to really keep the number of bodies coming back to South Africa to a bare minimum um, to maintain that limited support for the war. So uh, Colonel Jan Brettenbach, whose name I just butchered, I apologize. That's all right, um, <laughs> was a, uh, a South African Special Forces. I call him the Eternal Colonel in the book because it seems like the guy was a colonel from the 70s through the 90s. Yeah. Um, so he, he, uh, he I, very special forces of him. Yeah. Um, he came up with an, with an operational concept, which was to uh, take former insurgents or former terrorists, uh, they, they have a tendency to use the term interchangeably, and uh, give them a choice. They could spend the rest of their lives in prison, or he would feed them, train them, equip them, give them medical care, uh, house them, and they could fight for him. This was a, a brilliant use of manpower because not only are you solving a problem of insurgents, but you are not using South African soldiers except in very limited numbers. They were commanded by um, hand-selected white officers yeah. Uh, from the South African Defense Force. His goal, and the, the quote from his book, that his aim was to out-guerrilla the guerrillas. Um, and they, they really did a good job of that. Uh, they were notoriously feared. Um, they operated in enemy uniforms, using enemy weapons, eating enemy rations. Uh, so they were indistinguishable from the various insurgent groups that were working inside southern Angola and northern Namibia. Um, so not only was he fixing a strategic problem, but because of their level of aggressiveness and the uh, uncertainty that they sowed in the forces around um, the border region, they hurt the enemy's ability to really conduct anything at the operational level of war. They couldn't move people around without being nervous. Uh, about meeting attacks. They were untrusting of other groups. So they just sowed havoc uh, along the border region. Um, so novel operational concepts. Um, and then as they grew in stature and capability, they started being used more like what we would consider an unconventional warfare unit. Um, I don't know if you could call it foreign internal defense, but... Uh, <laughs> Sure, it was foreign internal defense inside Angola. 
um, they would train uh, some of the anti-communist forces um, and were actually, near the end of the war, used as uh, uh, mechanized infantry um, at uh, the Battle of Cuito Cuenaval, uh, which I probably butchered as well. Um, (laughs) So what was was interesting to me was not just the tactics that they used, because they're they're novel, um, they're impressive, but the fact that they really thought about how to solve some of the strategic problems they faced. Mm. Now the uh, the the interesting um, side on the tactics. Uh, I urge listeners, not just because it's from this show, but go back and listen to uh, General Reese, who talks a little bit about the tactics, and uh, that's why we're giving you the strategy here today. We're relating it uh, to Big Carl, as as you said, Jack, the Godfather of strategy. Um, so let's relate it to Big Carl. Let's uh, let's I like to call it chunking up. What important lessons or implications? did you find regarding this conflict, Big Carl, and this American way of war? Um, So the strategic view that the South Africans took, to me, was the correct one. Because what they did was to first establish their strategic goals before they tried to accomplish anything else. And um, I I don't know if uh, any of the generals would disagree with me, but through my research, this is kind of what I drew out. The first one was to maintain political legitimacy at home. They did that by limiting casualties and keeping the war on a low burn. The second one, and probably the most important one, was to keep Namibia, then Southwest Africa, from becoming a Marxist-Leninist state. But really, all of their efforts were um, designed to, to maintaining the political process and allow it to happen, allowing it to happen inside um, uh, Southwest Africa. Um, the last one was maintain international legitimacy sometimes, because after the embargo was put into place, uh, which limited any weapons sales or really material sales to uh, South Africa, the political legitimacy abroad was not as big a concern. They focused more on um, on uh, maintaining their war effort the way they wanted to fight it. So they didn't care whether it was an unconventional war or a counterinsurgency war or a conventional war. They just fought the war that they had. Um, And we're not tied up worrying about titles. The implications for us and kind of what pushed me into this project was this tactics and type idea that we view strategy uh, from the middle. We don't view it from Clausewitz's general theory, we seek to apply an operational doctrine to whatever conflict it is. Um, It's a little controversial, but I I think um, one of the problems with this is the nature of the American uh, civil-military relationship is one uh, that has a twofold problem. The first is that policymakers in the U.S. treat military um, generals and admirals as occasional advice givers, as opposed to, um, they can never be an equal partner, but a more equal partner that is an integral part to the strategic decision-making process. Um, it, it's more of an advisor role as opposed to um, a, an equal part or as equal part as possible, which undermines our ability to make strategy. But the, the second side of that coin, that the U.S. military, it's very comfortable remaining out of 
anything political. And by political, I don't mean partisan. We have a tendency to conflate those two terms. Yeah. But the operational level of war is very comfortable for us because we're good at it. It makes sense. We have books that can guide us, and we know when we've done a good job. We know when we've done a bad job. That is not so with the political realm, but war is a political animal. And if uh, it is an, has an onus on the general uh, or the admiral to understand and be involved in that political nature of warfare. We cannot simply be concerned with the operational level, level of war and applying doctrine. Yeah. We have to understand it from one level higher, the, the strategic level down, not the operational level up. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting uh, point you make because if our listeners remember the quote from Big Carl that you mentioned, you know, not, not you know, understanding war, not trying to turn it into something that's alien from its nature and you know, fighting the war they're in without labelling it, it sounds like a very important uh, point as well. However, Jack, our time together has almost come to a close. Uh, I know you're sad, I'm sad, my guests probably aren't because it means that they'll no longer be listening to me. But if if my listeners have a problem listening to me, just download the show and don't listen, guys. Um, no, I'm kidding. Please listen. Uh, Jack's taking some time to, to come on the show. Um, he's worth listening to, and uh, I tell some cracking jokes. Now, my final question is something that goes to all guests. Uh, it relates to our mission on the show, which is about defining war in as many ways as possible and exploring it in as many ways as possible. Uh, it's a bit like uh, you know, Big Carl, uh, as you said, the godfather of strategy uh, himself, uh, the original uh, dead Prussian, which is a bit like the original gangster, but a little bit cooler. Um, now, I ask each guest to finish the sentence, war is so. I ask you to finish this sentence. War is? Um, but I have actually put a significant amount of thought into this. Uh, not just because of the show, a lot of it is because of this uh, podcast, but um, I needed and wanted a, a workable definition that spoke to me. Um, but I will caveat this with any definition of warfare will be woefully inadequate to the task, so <laughs> I can only do my best. Uh, war is an all-encompassing act of political will designed with policy and acted through strategy and accomplished by operations and tactics. Wow, top of the class for Jack. Um, I'm glad you put some thought into it because it sounds like you put more thought into that one line than I put into about 99% of the shows. Um, but it's very interesting. Remember, listeners, it is important to relate war back to its uh, political nature and to understand the relationship between our politicians and our generals, no matter what country you're in. And no matter what your political system, that civil-military relationship is very, very important. Now, if you haven't gone out in the middle of listening to this episode and bought Jack's book, Angola Clausewitz in the American Way of War, now please do so now. You can find it on Amazon, which is where I do most of my book shopping, even though none of them have given me a call about giving this show heaps of money. Um, those listeners that are jogging or bike riding at the moment, Please do it when you get home. Don't stop in the middle of the bike path or the running track to do it. You might hurt yourself. There's my duty of care uh, to everyone. Please also follow Jack on Twitter. Uh, follow us on Twitter first, then follow Jack. Uh, it's at McCain Jack, and that's uh, McCain with a lowercase c and an uppercase c because he's indecisive, so he wanted both. 
Uh, now, Jack, thank you very much for coming on the show. Nick, thank you very much. It's been a distinct pleasure, and uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, no, my pleasure. And listeners, uh, hopefully by now you've also listened to the new show we've just released called War for Idiots. It's kind of like this show, uh, but a little bit funnier, and I've got a co-host, Rich, and he tries to be as funny as I am, but I'm not sure if he's hit the mark. Uh, until next time, listeners, uh, grab a book and crack on. Join the conversation with us on Twitter at Dead Prussian Pod, on Facebook at The Dead Prussian Page, or on our website, www.thedeadprussian.com. All show notes for this episode, as well as copyright information, can be found on the website. The Dead Prussian Podcast is written, produced and hosted by Mick Cook. It is co-produced by Amanda Levito. The music used throughout is Caught in the Beat by Broke for Free and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution Licence. All opinions expressed by individuals on the podcast are those of the individual and not necessarily representative of any other organisation.